please open to Luke chapter 11. And we are talking about teaching. In fact, this month we're going to highlight teaching or, or discipleship. Discipleship's teaching. You can't really make a disciple without teaching. We're entering into a section of the text where Jesus is really going to do some amazing teaching to his disciples. But first, he's got to wrap up this confrontation with the false teachers. So this morning's sermon is a a warning against false teaching. The next three Sundays we'll look at the good teaching. And then in October... We'll resume the discipleship class. We're on uh, the third leg of the discipleship class. And that third leg will be specific discipleship topics that tend to come up again and again and again. And so we'll, we'll promote that in October. And you can come to all of them. Or you can say, yeah, I really want to go to the one on suffering. Or I really want to go to the one on anxiety but I'm afraid to go, right? Um, I know a lot of people who need help with that, and I would like to be equipped to disciple in that area. So that's the plan. Remember, Jesus just performed this miracle. He casted out a demon. Some accused him of casting out the demon by the power of Satan. Others wanted to see a sign so that they knew he was authentically from heaven. And he confronted both of those groups. And now we're going to see some Pharisees and scribes invite him to lunch. And as he approaches the cross, the confrontations are going to get much more heated. He's going to expose the false teachers for who they are. Why do we put such an emphasis on teaching at Country Oaks? From time to time, and when I say time to time, I mean often, we'll hear people say, Country Oaks uh, puts too much emphasis on teaching, not enough emphasis on doing. Well, certainly if we're not doing the Word, then shame on us. But I don't think that's the case. We could always do better doing the Word. But I see lots of people doing the Word in this church. I see us sending out missionaries to the unreached people groups. I see us making disciples. I see us sharing the gospel. I see people serving. And those are just the places where I see it happening. I assume for everything I see happening, there's a hundred more things the Lord is doing through his people here. But we do need to be on guard against um, what do you getting, uh, what's that metaphor, the, re- the Dead Sea, the water goes in, but it never goes out, and so it turns into the Dead Sea. We need to make sure that the teaching we're receiving, we turn around and do what the Word of God says to do. But we should never pit teaching against doing. They go hand in hand. You don't know what to do unless you've been taught. You don't know who God is unless you've been taught. You don't know what he requires of us unless you've been taught. You don't know what your biggest problem is unless you've been taught. And you don't know what the solution is unless you've been taught. The last command Jesus gave was, 
go and what? Make disciples. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. He'll be with us in this endeavor. He's with us in the word. He's with us in spirit and in power. The front half of that great commission is the teaching of the gospel. Go and baptize. Now, we don't baptize anyone until they've what? been taught the gospel and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So the teaching is implicit in the command. The second half of the Great Commission is the sanctification of the believer, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. So we have justification and sanctification wrapped up in the Great Commission. And the teaching has to happen. Everyone is a disciple. Say that again. Everyone is a disciple. I didn't say everyone was a disciple of Christ. Everybody's a disciple. Everybody's learning. Everybody's being taught by somebody. The question is, who is teaching you? And the smart Alex says, well, you are, Pastor Brent. And because I have a little bit of smart aleck in me too, I would say, only if you're listening. (laughs) Pastor Andy shared a story with me last night where he was listening to a and a session with John MacArthur and a lady who was not a member of their congregation, but at the Q&A said, I have a question, how much do I need to obey my pastor? And John said, uh, or the question was, how much authority does my pastor have over me? And, and John wisely could tell this woman had probably been let down by a pastor or taken advantage of by a pastor or whatever. So he handled it with wisdom and with gentleness. But when he got to the main point, he said, your pastor has no authority over you. The Word of God has authority over you. And in as much as your pastor or your teacher is teaching the Word of God and handling it correctly, he has authority over you. The authority lies in the Word of God because behind the Word of God is God and all authority has been given to me, Jesus said, before he gave the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me. So teaching is important because you are proclaiming the authority of God. Not your own authority, not your own cleverness, not your own opinions. There's endless opinions out there, no shortage of advice. But when you come to church and you're making disciples... It's not a Miss Manners column. It's not Dear Abby. It's not helpful suggestions. It needs to be the authority of the Word of God. So teaching is important to God, especially since when we come to the Bible and we've been looking at this, that 
when we get to Genesis 3 and we see what man's chief problem is, we could sum it up this way. Man doesn't want to be taught by God. Man wants to teach God. Man thinks he's wiser and has moral authority to correct God. It's why when Paul writes Romans, at one point he says, is there any injustice with God? May it never be. In essence, who are you to judge God? May God be found true and every man a liar. And then later in Romans, he says, does God have a counselor? Who counsels God? And it's a corrective again. It's a rebuke. I know what you're doing. You're judging God's wisdom. Don't do it. He's wiser than you. And not by a little bit. And yet, this is our fallen nature. And even those of us who are redeemed and have a new nature, we realize that that old nature is like a parasite. It's like a virus, it, it's embedded. It digs in and it hides. And then you have flare-ups. Flare-ups of pride and arrogance and I don't need to be taught. And I'll do the teaching. And so we must all be on guard for false teachers, but be on guard knowing that Our sin nature wants to listen to false teachers. What does Paul say to Timothy? Preach the word, whether in season or out of season. For a day is coming when what? People won't stand for good teaching. They'll heap up for themselves false teachers who tickle the ear. Meaning that I already know what I want to hear. I'll go find a teacher who teaches me what I already believe and just reaffirm what I want to hear. Whenever I come to the Word of God, I'm expecting it to confront my sensibilities. I'm expecting God to tell me something about the world, about Himself, or about me that makes me go, huh? That's not the way I thought it worked. That's a good thing. That is a good thing. I need to be corrected. The smart aleck then would say, why are we sitting here and listening to you then? (laughs) Well, I would hope that there's mutual accountability here. You're studying the Word of God, so if you hear me teach something false, or thought you heard me teach something false, that we would come together and we would open the Word of God together and search the Scriptures, and our elders are searching the Word of God And they're holding me accountable, and the other pastors are holding me accountable, and I'm holding them accountable. And that's the way it will have to work until we get to glory. And we have no more fallenness in us. And we will see clearly because we will see him as he is instead of through a veil or a glass dimly lit, as Paul says. So on the one hand, we're humble And we're suspicious, but on the other hand, we don't use that as a source of false humility and say, well, can anyone really know anything about God? 
I mean, he is God. Yes, we can, because he revealed it to us. Yes, he can. That, don't use that as a cop-out, false humility, to not worship God for who he is. Can we know him exhaustively? No. He's infinite. He's inexhaustible. His ways are unsearchable. And yet he's knowable. He's revealed himself to us. He's revealed his will to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that have been given to us and our children, right? We can know those things and we're accountable to those, those things. So teaching is not only of paramount importance, you can't escape it. It happens all day long. You are being taught by someone, depending on what you watch, what you read, who you're listening to, whether it's newsprint or blogs or news programs, radio shows, books you're reading, those things with the paper, the pages. Parents give their kids a smartphone and don't realize you just gave them a teacher. Or access to infinite teachers. Do your children have the discernment to know when to not listen to a false teacher? Oh yeah, I've told them what's true and what's false. Do your children know that even if they know who is a good teacher and who is a false teacher, their fallen hearts will want to listen to the false teacher. Until your kid knows that about their own heart and is suspicious of their own fallenness, they're not ready for that kind of immersion. Eventually, though, they will leave the home. And so we teach them how to be discerning, how to be humble, how to be suspicious of their own sin nature, where to go for truth, how to measure everything they hear against the Word of God. And so that's what the discipleship sermon series will be about. Let me, though, warn you against false teachers, and I'll give you, um, I think it's eight reasons this morning, why Jesus condemns false teachers. Jesus, when he came, there was a lot of people he could have condemned. The pagans, the Greeks, rank sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, thieves. But who does D- Jesus pronounce woes against? The false teachers. That's who he saves his greatest anger for. In fact, in the Gospel of John... Jesus says, Son of Man did not come to condemn, right? But he condemned these people because they wouldn't listen to the message of repentance. They didn't think they needed grace and mercy. So here's the scene. Jesus gets invited to lunch or brunch. The word in the Greek is it's an early meal. Big deal to get invited over to eat. In this culture, really big deal. Honor, shame, culture. So there's um, 
certain protocols and ethics that you need to follow when you get invited over. You don't want to disgrace your guest, and likewise the guest doesn't want to disgrace the host. And so Jesus reclines at the table, and the food is served, and he didn't ceremonially wash his hands. There, there would be bowls to wash your hands. Um, don't think in the modern way, like, oh, he needed to wash his hands to kill the germs. Don't, don't read modern culture into the Bible. Oh, he didn't wash his hands, you know. Kids, go wash your hands for dinner. Oh, they didn't wash their hands. No, that's not what's going on here. This was a law that the Pharisees had made up in order to appear cleaner and holier than everyone else. In fact, they had built these washing stations all over Jerusalem so whenever a Gentile walked by or somebody unclean, they could wash and make sure everybody's watching. You know, and you're like, "Oh, come on! Who would do that?" I'm serious. This is, this is what happened. And so Jesus, as we have been seeing him do, often, purposefully and publicly decides to break with human convention, to start an argument. Now, some of you like to start arguments. You're not Jesus. <laughs> But by the same token, some of you are so afraid of any kind of conflict that you'll just go along with the charade. And we shouldn't be that person either. So he chooses not to wash. And the Pharisee saw it. He was surprised. And actually it's that word we've been saying is astonished or amazed like after he does miracles. Okay, so normal people see Jesus do a miracle and they're amazed. A Pharisee sees him not wash his hands before dinner and he's amazed. Doesn't this guy know what he's doing or not doing? I can't believe this. This is outrageous. I am beside myself. He was astonished that he had not first washed before the meal. Uh, the NAS adds the word ceremonially. That's not actually there in the Greek. The word is just baptized. It's baptized. But it would be weird to read he did not baptize his hands first. Did he immerse him or did he sprinkle? <laughs> right? We're not going to get into that controversy today. So the word baptizo can also mean this ceremonial, ceremonial cleansing. So he didn't wash his hands, and um, now the battle is on. So the first thing Jesus confronts about false teachers is that they're not as good and wise as they think they are. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter. And then he switches the metaphor. But inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. How's that for insulting your host? 
he's not pulling any punches now. I mean, the cross is, is just a short time away, so he's letting it all hang out now. And you foolish ones, you fools, you idiots, you fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. He's, he's pointing out to them that they ignore the heart when they teach. And the heart's the most important thing to God. We say that all the time around here. We've got to get to the heart. Our parenting curriculum, shepherding a child's heart. We've got to get to the heart of the matter. When people come in for discipleship or counseling, they don't know that you want to get to the heart. They think the problem's about this. We know the problem's underneath at the root level. They're looking at the fruit. We're interested in the root. The Pharisees were all about the outward fruit. Now, we're interested in fruit as well, but we know that we won't get good fruit unless the root is good. Jesus said you'll know a tree by its fruit. What kind of tree is it? If you see robbery and wickedness, even if in front of other people they're pretending to be good, you know what's really going on in their heart. So here, Jesus doesn't even wait to get to the root of the problem. He tells them, you are not good and you are not wise. Remember, we've been saying this is man's chief problem is he thinks he's better than he really is and wiser than he really is. That's, that's you and that's me. This is our problem. We're people. We all fit in that category. But if you're better than you really are, then you don't need a savior. And if you're wiser than you really are, you don't need a Lord. You can be your own Lord. So this is a terrible dilemma. The, the solution is to admit that you're not as good and not as wise as you think you are. But if you're convinced that you're wise and good, you're never going to listen to Jesus. You're never going to hear the gospel. You're never going to change. You're never going to grow. You're just going to get a hardened heart and you're going to dig in your heels even deeper. Second condemnation of false teachers is that they're legalists, and they, so they misrepresent God. The teachers of Israel were supposed to point people to God and their need for forgiveness, their need for mercy. And then they would be a light to the other nations of this glorious, merciful, loving God. And yet, instead, they taught that if you are good enough, God has to like you. God has to be pleased with you. God has to accept you. That puts you in control. You have to let me into your heaven. I kept all the rules, all the ones you gave me, and then all the ones I added for good measure. And of course... The ones 
that we add are the ones that are easier to keep. And not only are easier to keep, they're the ones we like to keep. So the things that we're naturally good at and like to do anyways and would do even if nobody told us to do it, we make those the standard of goodness. And we use it to measure ourselves and to judge everyone else. Remember, the Pharisees, since we were talking about work and rest, had added so many rules to the Sabbath that it was no longer a day of rest for most people. It was heavy and burdensome, and people would not, were not looking forward to the Sabbath. You know, you're like, oh, the weekend's here, I can rest. They were like, oh, no, the Sabbath's here again. They're fretting about it the day after the last Sabbath. Worrying about the next one. And of course the Pharisees had no problems keeping those external rules on the Sabbath. And it made them convince themselves that they were holier and better than everyone else. And by teaching people that this is who God is. This is what God wants of you. They're misrepresenting the character of God. And God shows up in person, in the person of Jesus Christ, and says, that's not me. That's not God. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And I'll heal someone on the Sabbath. If I want to. Because the Sabbath is a day for honoring God and doing good. Loving my fellow man. That's a great thing to do on the Sabbath. I only cut a piece of Matt Sheridan's teaching this morning. Did, did he say I can't golf every day when I retire? <laughs> just want to get that clear. That just burst my bubble. Well, by the time you retire, you're no good at golfing anyway, so you won't want to golf every day. My little brother always says the country club's wasted <laughs> on people who can't golf anymore. <laughs> they don't know they can't golf anymore. They're happy. But thank you, Matthew, for, for reminding us that rest is one thing. And let's not let our rest turn into... Uh, What? Laziness and making leisure an idol. So, but hey, retired people, keep inviting me out to golf. <laughs> we'll go with you. We'll evangelize some pagan retirees. <laughs> Woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. I'm just picturing these guys with all their spices and like an exacto knife, just, you know, nine for God, or one for God, nine for me. One for God, right? We got, we got a tithe. And yet you disregard justice and the love of God. Well, how do you tithe on justice and the love of God? That's the whole point. It's an attitude of the heart. It, it, it can't be measured and divvied up. If you love God, you want to give. 
If you're a legalist, you have to give, but only 10% and not a penny more. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. This is one of the worst things about false teaching is it, it pulls people away from the true gospel. It's teaching them to be moralists, to be legalists, to not throw yourself on the mercy of God. The law is good, but the law is a tutor that teaches us our need for God's grace. And if there's anyone here today who's trying to work their way to heaven, I have wonderful news to you. For you. You you can stop trying. You're never going to get there. In fact, you're insulting God because he's given you a free gift. His son did all the work on the cross, so you don't have to work for your salvation. You receive the gift through faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. Passage goes on to say, so that you can then do good works. And by the way, they're good works that God's already planned for you in advance. Now, if there's someone here today who really thinks they've earned their way to heaven, this isn't good news. It is, you just don't think it is. it's, It's meant to crush you. To humble you. You have no idea what the standard really is. Stop comparing yourself to others. The standard is perfection. And Jesus was God in human flesh. He lived the perfect life, not you. Throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus. He, he loves you. He's ready to forgive you and welcome you into the kingdom. Well, thirdly, false teachers fear man and not God. Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees. By the way, this word woe, we've kind of hijacked this word. You know, we say, well, woe is me. I had a hard day at work. No, that's not what woe means. Woe is a statement of judgment, of divine judgment. This is not something you're supposed to say at the dinner table to your host. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Remember back in Luke 6.26, he said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. That is not the goal. Now, some of you take pride in having no one speak well of you. We need to talk to you, too. That's a different sermon. But... For the people pleasers out there and those who don't want to say anything that might offend and those who want to invite people to put their faith in Jesus but, but when you, you start to suspect that ooh, that's going to push them away if I tell them Jesus wants them to do that uh, I'll skip that part. You are not making disciples of Christ. You're afraid they're going to reject you for following Jesus. That's between them and the Lord. That's between them and the Lord. You know eventually you're going to teach something to someone from the Word of God that they are going to find offensive. 
Trust in God's timing and in his grace because he got you past the thing that was offensive to you, which now is no longer offensive because you've repented and you've accepted it as truth, and now it's wonderful and beautiful to you. But you're like, it's not wonderful and beautiful to this person yet, so we just won't ever get to that part of the Bible. You're, you're not trusting in the same power of God and the same grace of God that got you over the hump. Oh, they might respond in anger. You might temporarily lose a friend. Would you rather have a friend going to hell or a temporary enemy? who's heard the truth spoken in love. The wounds of a friend are faithful. The kisses of an enemy. I don't know the rest of the proverb. I'm so horrible with scripture memory. That's why I'm not in charge of Awana anymore. I'm, I'm the worst example. It's in there somewhere, and like at 2.30 this afternoon, the rest of it will kick in. I envy those with that photographic memory. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. The false prophets, men speak well of them because they tell people what people want to hear anyways. Number four, Jesus condemns the false teachers because they're blind to their own deadness and blindness. See, when we make disciples as humble Christians, we give this disclaimer. I need to hear this as much as you do. I am not the source of truth. I'm bringing you to the source of truth. I don't even claim to live this perfectly. But I'm trying, by the grace of God, to live this out. And love covers a multitude of sins. But the false teachers don't teach this way. They teach with blind authority and conviction that what they're saying is truth. They never question themselves. Never never question themselves. So Jesus says, Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are un." aware of it. In in another place he said, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You're, You're white on the outside but full of dead men's bones on the inside, but you can't see the inside of the tomb. And in this case, it's a tomb that's buried and people are just walking over something that they don't even know is a tomb. So you have dead people not aware of their own deadness and the people they're leading a Stray don't even know that these people are dead. What did Jesus call them? Blind guides leading the blind. What a, what a visual, right? You picture someone blind leading another blind person around. And neither of them know they're blind. And in this case, you have spiritually dead people 
being trampled over by spiritually dead people. It's, it's a sad scene for Jesus because he being God can see what's going on and like, oh. <laughs> the blind leading the blind, the dead walking over the dead. This is what makes it hard to get through to false teachers. They're convinced that they're right and they never question that they may have a blind spot. Well, I checked today and I don't see any blind spots. You fool. You can't see your own blind spot. That's why it's a blind spot. Someone else has to show you. Well, who's going to show me? I'm right and everyone else is wrong. Uh Uh-oh. Right? You see the vicious circle. Fifth, false teachers are hypocrites. Luke 11.45. I have to admit I got a little chuckle out of this. I know this is serious. It's like life or death, heaven and hell serious. But the scene was just amusing to me. Because I'm picturing everyone around the table and you have the like Pharisees on this side and the scribes and the lawyers on the other because they really didn't like each other. But they were united in their hatred for, de- for Jesus and they, they were the elite of society so they had to eat together much like the elite today. Don't really seem to like each other but spend a little time in D.C. and you'll see that they probably eat at all the same fancy restaurants. So you got Pharisees on one side, the scribes, the lawyers on the other. Jesus is lambasting the Pharisees. He's just pronounced woe after woe after woe to them. And this lawyer says, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. Like Jesus is like, oh, what was I thinking? I am so sorry, I forgot where I was. No, here's what Jesus says. And woe to you lawyers as well. I was getting to this side of the table, but thank you for reminding me. For you weigh men down with burdens that are hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You lay down the law and you don't keep it yourself. And in another place he says, and you, you don't lift a finger to help anyone meet those burdens. You just keep stacking up burdens on top of people. God's not going to love you unless you do this. He's not going to love you unless you do this. He's not going to love you. And they're hypocrites. They would say one thing in public and do the opposite in private. This is common with false teachers. Number six, false teachers kill the true teachers either literally or they silence true teachers. Is this not our culture right now? This is the land of the freedom of speech. Just not that speech. Or that, or that, or that. Well, why don't you just tell me what I can say? Well, we're already saying it, so you don't need to. Free speech hangs in the balance in our country right now. Will, will it survive? 
here we're teaching this morning, it is your God-given duty and privilege and right to teach your own children. And we're now living in a culture that says that is not your right. I mentioned from the pulpit this morning, a little shout out to our new spiritual life director at HOS, Zach Douglas. Thank you, Zach. And uh, he's from Rockland. And a story from Rockland, that's east of Sacramento, a charter school in Rockland. Kindergarten. Kindergarten. A little boy, everyone's known as Bobby, one day comes to school and the teacher reads a book about a crayon who was red but really thought he was blue. And so now he's a blue crayon. And Billy leaves the classroom and comes back with a dress on. He's now Sally. And they have a transgender reveal party. Parents not notified that this was going to happen. Kids went home, some hysterical, afraid. What if I'm not what I think I am? Others, because the kid got so much attention that day, wanted to wear a dress tomorrow at school. One kid, the next day, out on the playground, used the wrong pronoun to refer to Billy and was sent to the principal's office to make sure whether it was an accident or if he was bullying and it's like, it's a kindergartner. Parents went to complain, as they should. School board said, you don't have the legal right in California to be notified that this teaching is going to happen. Because it would be offensive to the child and his family if everyone pulled their kid out of school that day. Nor do you have the legal right to opt out from that teaching. So you can't have your kids stay home or go to another room. And they said, well, that's the law for sex education. They said, this isn't sex education. We didn't talk about reproductive parts. Wow. I, I was raised in Stockton. Rockland's like an hour away. That looks like cutting so close to home. And for you, literally close to home. And what broke my heart the most was that most of the parents instead of pulling their kid out of the charter school, said, we just want to be notified when you're teaching these things so we can prepare our kids in advance and follow up with them when they come home. You're going to leave your kids in the school? False teachers silence any other teaching. Any other teaching must be silenced, especially any teaching that comes from God. And so, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets. And it was your fathers who killed them. Right? Old Testament is a long history of the true prophets of God being murdered and persecuted. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because... It was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. Who does the there refer to? The tombs of the prophets, the true prophets. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Why is he condemning them then? Okay, here's what's going on. The true prophets were murdered in the past and didn't have a proper burial. 
the false teachers of the day publicly recognized that this was a bad thing and we should build tombs to honor them. So we'll build tombs to honor the prophets of old and then not teach what they were teaching. What's more honoring? Teaching the message that God gave the prophets or building them a tomb or a statue or a whatever? As we see, statues come and go. It's the teaching. It's the word of the Lord that stands forever. All men are like grass. And the flowers of the field, the grass weathers and the flowers fade. But the word of the Lord stands forever. I got one. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Thank you, seeds of faith. Yes, uh, scripture set to music. So I almost started singing. So the false teachers try to erase the past, rewrite history, expunge truth, get it off the record, rewrite the record, honor these great men from the past, but don't tell us what they really taught. Now we're seeing people honor not so great men from the past. I was reading recently that in Russia they're re-erecting statues to Stalin because he was a great leader. And back when we were a superpower, he was our leader. And he wasn't so bad. Oh, only a hundred million slaughtered, starved to death. So what does God think of all this? God judges false teachers. Luke eleven forty nine. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, prophets of the Old Testament, Apostles, the new, he's, he's summarizing all of redemptive history. And some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Whoa, that is harsh. All of that blood will be charged against this generation. Why this generation, the one he was speaking to at the moment? Because they had the most revelation, the most light. They had God in human flesh right in front of them teaching them. And they rejected God. God reserves the strictest judgment for false teachers. James says, let not many of you become teachers my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. He's not saying don't teach because then you'd be violating God's commands to teach the next generation and teach your children and make disciples. He's saying don't jump into the official, full-time, public role of teacher of God's truth. Because you'll incur a stricter judgment. These were the full-time, public, self-described teachers of Israel. Often we'll hear people say, you know, what's up with uh, so-and-so Christian leader calling out so-and-so for being a heretic? That doesn't seem very loving and kind. And what a horrible testimony to the rest of the world watching. Christians should just get along. And we always teach at this church, unity 
never at the sake of false doctrine. Jesus said, I didn't come to unify. I brought a sword. The Word of God divides. Doctrine divides, and it needs to. Not all doctrine is true doctrine. We should be kind and generous and humble about how we disagree, but when somebody writes a book and sells a million copies of it, and it's false, then you need to be called out publicly. Why? Because you are leading people astray. You are leading people away from God. So when you teach publicly, you are held to a stricter judgment. And so Jesus tells that group of teachers from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Somehow in ways that I I don't completely understand, the Bible talks about God's cup of wrath being filled and then finally to overflowing. I don't know when that happens. That's his prerogative. It reminds me of one of those big buckets of water at those water parks that fill up with the water and then it tips over and pours out its wrath. And all I know is that for those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, the bucket of wrath landed on Jesus on the cross and not on me. Praise God. Number seven, false teachers then, here's the worst part of all, false teachers make false disciples. That's the problem. Hey, I have pity on you if you want to believe error. I have pity on you if you want to believe error. You're, you're sitting under God's wrath, hopefully not eternally, hopefully you'll repent in time. You're going to be miserable. You're not going to live the life of blessing. I pity you. You start teaching other people, I get angry. You teach that to my people, you're going to hear from me. What's harder is when somebody willingly says, I will go listen to the false teaching. Now I pity you and I'm angry at you simultaneously. (laughs) And we need to go get you. Bring the sheep back into the fold. Luke eleven fifty two. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. What's the key of knowledge? The key of knowledge is interpreting the Bible correctly so you can teach it correctly. You know, here's, here's the wisdom, here's the treasure. Without the right key, you can't unlock it. The unlocking is the Proper interpretation. You've taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter and you hindered those who were entering. He says it another way in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, one convert, one disciple, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. That is scary. Those words are absolutely scary. 
These were people who thought they were making disciples of the true God, and instead they were pushing people away from God with their false teaching. Everybody is teaching. Everybody is learning. We've got to get this through our heads. But I'm not interested in discipleship. There's other parts of the Christian life I'm more interested in. No, you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you're making disciples whether or not you sign up to be an official teacher in one of our programs here. Finally, false teachers rarely repent. False teachers rarely repent. Here's this man who's performed miracles like they've never seen before, taught with authority they'd never heard before, taught with wisdom they've never been exposed to before, and he's calling them to repentance. And when he leaves, it says the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, sitting in judgment over him again, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Try to publicly expose him. Around here we like to call it doubling down. You're bluffing. And I know you're bluffing. Too bad, I'm doubling down. Just repent. Just trust Jesus. Listen to him. Be humble. Mm -mm. I say false teachers rarely repent, but... That's not to give up on false teachers. Don't listen to them. Don't sit under their teaching. But they're to be prayed for and pursued. Because you would not have your New Testament unless a false teacher had repented. The Apostle Paul. A false teacher. Persecuting Christians. Teaching works-based righteousness. Repented. And we have most of our New Testament. Because these false teachers are made in God's image. And many have been given the gift of teaching. They know how to teach. A lot of them teach better than I teach. They're just teaching the wrong thing. Which makes them worse than useless teachers. And so we pray for false teachers. But we lovingly expose their false teaching. So let me close with these questions then. Do you take teaching and discipleship as serious as God does? Who is teaching you? Who is teaching your family? What are they teaching? And who are you teaching? Well, I'm not teaching. Yes, you are. Who are you teaching and what are you teaching? Father God, thank you for... Sending us a teacher. Jesus Christ, thank you for sending us the teacher, the Holy Spirit. Thank you for giving us the word. Protect us from false teachers. Protect your church from false teachers. Protect me from false teaching. Protect us from our own desire to want to hear false teaching, Lord. Give us hunger for the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.